Well, we've been uh, talking about what a healthy church is, and we've been talking about how a healthy church is a church that is a church of disciples, and this, what is a disciple, and a disciple is someone who's acquiring knowledge about God and what it means to follow God, but it's not just acquiring the knowledge, but the disciple has God's spirit in his or her life, and God's spirit is, is meeting that knowledge, and that knowledge is transforming us helping us become more like Christ. And that's what a healthy church is. It's discipleship. And, and so some of the assessments that we can ask about ourselves is, is, you know, are we disciples? Discipleship is something we never leave. It's a lifelong thing. Are we continuing to learn not just facts about God? Is our lives continuing to be transformed to be more like Christ? Are we becoming um, more forgiving, more full of grace, more passionate about righteousness? Are we becoming a stronger community here at this church? Are we being driven to that, or is it just the same old, same old? Well, that's what a healthy church is. And the goal is that we would know what a healthy church is and, and want to get there. And, and this section in the Sermon on the Mount began with this idea about Jesus talking about the law and saying, I didn't come to do away with the law, I came to fulfill it. And so last week we had a little bit about that because Jesus immediately goes to this, this problem that he knows we all have. doesn't matter how old or how young, doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, doesn't matter how educated you are, doesn't matter. We all have this problem with anger. And we talked about how anger can be can be dangerous, and anger can be, is abundant, and, and, and anger is so often misunderstood. And some people think, well, I'm not angry. I don't know about that. A lot of times people think anger is only the outburst and the expression, and that's not true. There are some very quiet, angry people, and they keep suppressing anger. If you do that, the church cannot be healthy. The relationships cannot be healthy because pretty soon you have some anger about just about everybody else here and you can never really develop the kind of relationship that's required to be the body of Christ. Well, today, and I didn't ask Sam how he was going to address this. By the way, what the kids worship does is they parallel whatever we talk about up here. So I didn't ask Sam about this because today we're talking about a second thing that is a problem. And again, it goes back to the law and how we fulfill the law. And this is about sex. And the same thing we could say about anger, we could say about sex. That sex is everywhere. Just about every human being that's ever lived has had sexual desires. Sex can be dangerous. And sex is very much misunderstood. And not just misunderstood in our culture, but misunderstood in our churches. And that's the problem. It's a problem where we're not, um, we're not talking about this topic as a matter of fact, that word up there, some of you think there's no place for that in the church. 
Maybe some of you have been Christians for decades and you've never heard a pastor preach about sex. That's a private matter. That's something that really doesn't have anything to do with being a Christian. Nothing could be further from the truth. But let me tell you that that Jesus isn't going to be talking about that because he's trying to say how important sex is. Just like he didn't talk about anger to talk about how important anger is. He was talking about anger because he knew that if you don't take care of your anger, you cannot really love. And what's fundamental to being a Christian, what's fundamental to being a church, what's fundamental to being this community of disciples is that we love. And if we don't deal with anger properly, we can never love. Same thing with sex. Jesus is not talking about the importance of sex. He's actually talking about the importance of marriage and how marriage is is so important to God's plan, so important to the proclamation of the gospel. And we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago, and if you went to the conference we, we had, you know, I made a presentation on that, and you can eventually be able to watch that. But he's trying to talk about how important marriage is and how dangerous sex is to marriage. And we don't talk about it. We don't talk about this very important subject. And I don't want anybody to raise their hands, but I want you to think about this. Did mom and dad ever talk to you about sex? Did you talk to your kids about sex? My daughters had, I don't know how they feel about it, but they had conversations with dad. We talked about it. Oh, not so worried about the mechanics. Not talking about the birds and the bees. Simply how we get babies. No. I remember when my girls were about sixth grade, seventh grade. Part of it was, this is how middle school boys think. That very subject means we are going to talk about sex. Because middle school boys are obsessed. And it's not going to change. It's going to go into when they're in high school. And I know some of you think, well, you know, my son was the exception. He was a He was like a little priest. He just never thought about those things. (laughs) Right. Okay. But we don't talk about it. I'm not talking about what sex is. I'm talking about do we even talk to our children about the purpose of sex? Do we even talk about it in terms of, of, of the role that it plays and that the Bible says that it plays? very beginning says when two become one that's not a beautiful poetic thing to talk about love it's talking about sex do you understand that it's exactly what it's talking about it's symbolic of the other but that's what it's talking about see here's the problem The problem is we live in a world that's obsessed 
with sex and sexual identity. This has been going on for a while, but it's relatively recent that, that most people identify themselves by their sexual identity. And our culture has been increasingly obsessed with sex. In advertising, there's this thing that says sex sales. And it's true. And what's happening is this, you know, when you have so much of what's going on with this talking about sex, and it's coming not from the church and not from God's word, but it's coming from the culture. It's coming from media. It's coming from music industry. It's coming from movies and books and all this other stuff. It's so changed our proper understanding that we can't even divide it ourselves. Even if we know there's a difference, and it should be different, we can't help ourselves because we've been so acculturated, so indoctrinated. There are a lot of people, even Christians, that if they think about it, they don't even know what to believe because no one's ever taught them, because churches don't talk about it. Or if they think they know what they believe, they say things like, they say like, well, you know, it's a victimless crime. Or they'll say like, if it's involving two consenting adults, it must be okay. Or the classic, it's nobody's business. It's okay for the world to say that. It's not okay for us in the church to say that. Al read Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's in, it's in the program. If you want to understand why you can never say as a Christian that what someone does in their sexual life is nobody's business and it's a victimless crime, read that passage again. If you're not a Christian, you can make that statement, fine. I still don't think it's true, but you can make that statement. But if you're a Christian and you're part of a healthy church, that passage makes it really clear. What you do affects the whole body, somehow, some way. It's not a private sin. It's not a victimless crime. And so, Instead of our church's leading culture, we've done one of two things. We've either given in to culture, or we've done the opposite. We've just said, sex is wrong, sex is evil. Do not even think sex thoughts even when you're having sex, which is stupid. I'm sorry. I probably wasn't supposed to say that word. Well, the kids aren't here. Well, one, one kid's here. Tell them it's bad to say stupid, even though the pastor just said it. But it is. That's what the church teaches. And so people get this thing that somehow sex is dirty and evil. And so we shouldn't talk about it as Christians because we're saintly and good. So we're not leading culture. We're not talking about our kids, about what the Bible teaches. We're not even talking about sexual ethics in our, in our churches and among Christians. And so I would ask yourself, I would ask this question, if you didn't teach your kids about sex, who did? Where did they learn what's right and wrong? 
Where were they having these discussions? Because they were having them somewhere. Scary enough if they were just having them with their friends. It's even scarier if they were learning largely sexual ethics through the public schools. It's important. In a world obsessed with sex and sexual identity, the church cannot afford to be silent anymore. But let me tell you, the church can't afford to be stupid either. We've got to know, what does the Bible actually teach on this topic? I don't have any delusions of grandeur that I can tell you everything in 30 minutes. But I think I can get us started. So here's Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. He's got all these people gathered, thousands of people come to hear him, tens of thousands. And so he's just talked about the law, and then he's talked about anger, and now he's going to tell them about adultery. He, has said, he says here, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Hmm. Jesus is doing with adultery, which by the way is one of the Ten Commandments, and if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus is doing. He's addressing each one of the commandments in different ways. But he's, he's dealing with this idea of, of adultery, and he's saying it's not just the act. It's even the intent. It's even the thought. What's already affecting our world today and our society today, and it's only going to get worse, is the proliferation of pornography. It's everywhere. It's accessible. If your kids have a phone or a computer, they have access to pornography. When we were kids, you had to go into a, like a bookstore with scary looking adults in it if you wanted to find pornography. But nowadays, it's in your homes. How are they gonna escape lustful intent People have committed sexual immorality in their minds well before they're even 18. And we know that addiction to pornography is a real thing, especially for guys. So, it's an important topic. It's one we need to talk about. It makes us uncomfortable. We look at pastor and go, what could he know about sex? Not much. I did have three kids somehow, and I'm pretty sure my wife isn't the Virgin Mary with immaculate conception, but perhaps. But what does this tell us? What do we find in Scripture? The first thing that we find in Scripture, and what we find in this text, is that God created sex for marriage, period. 
exclusive, no debate. Premarital, no. After you've been married and maybe you're now in your golden years, no. Never, ever outside of marriage. That's why one of the Ten Commandments is adultery. For a disciple, no excuse. Not, you, you cannot rationalize it. I don't care. It's impossible. And it's not because I'm saying this. It's not because I'm drawing a line. It's because, it's because God drew that line. But let me tell you something. That the first part of that is that God created sex. That's the first part. Understand what that means. That means that God doesn't create anything that's not good. God created sex. It is good. But he created it for marriage. Period. That's what he says. You shall not commit adultery. God created sex in the marriage relationship because it becomes an expression of love. It's an expression of, of, of holy love. You see, it's humanity's like corruption of, of what sex is that makes us feel kind of awkward to think about sex as a, as a picture of God's love. We don't think they go together because we think, you know, God somehow doesn't know about sex. That maybe Satan brought sex into the world, but that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us from the very beginning it's the creation of God. Therefore it is good. But it was intended for marriage. But what we find in society and media is, is not that. Oh, sometimes you'll get pictures of, of love. But too much what we get from, from society and from culture is, is that sex is wrong, sex is dirty. Or now we're getting to the point that it's casual. It's kind of like shaking hands without your clothes on. The church can't allow that to happen anymore. The church can't allow to, the, the world to give, to give us and shape our understanding of this gift that was given to us by God. And it's hard because it's everywhere. I will almost guarantee those of you who watch TV and movies and things like that, at some point in time, you have cheered and been happy when adultery happens in the movie. You've been cheered, you're happy and you're, you're celebrating the fact that someone is, is having sex before marriage, outside of marriage. You know, we, the story's just told so beautifully, and, and it's like, oh, that, that poor woman caught up in that, that loveless relationship, and she meets the dream guy, and, and it's not sure they're ever going to get together, and then they get together, and you're so happy. Or that guy who, you know, had that 
immature, selfish you know, wife, and he was just locked in, and he couldn't get out of it. And, and then all of a sudden, this beautiful angel comes in. And we're so happy. Why? It's because we've been so indoctrinated by our culture. This is clear. God created sex for marriage. But he also created sex for a purpose. It has a purpose. It has a very practical purpose. And is, but it has this other purpose. It has this symbolic purpose. Now the practical purpose is, okay, so that we can produce children. It's kind of cool. It's this unity this unity, this physical unity that God grants us in our marriages that has the capacity to produce life. We get to participate in that life-giving process. We know it's ultimately the work of God, but he allows us to participate in the process. It's a good thing. But it's also this symbol of loving unity. Again, it's in that phrase, when two become one. The two will become one. It's supposed to be a symbol. And it's supposed to be a symbol of the love that the husband and the wife have for each other. And it's an interesting symbol because it's, it's a symbol and it's, it's the symbol of part of what the, the beauty of the unity of the church is. That the part of the unity of the church is not that we're all the same. It's that we're different, and we still love one another. We don't talk about this. We don't talk about this being the picture of love, the picture of of those who are different can become one in Christ. We don't talk about that. But that's the picture. It's why Paul references it in Ephesians 5. What was said back in Genesis about the two shall become one, he brings that back up in Ephesians 5 when he's talking about the husband-wife relationship. And he's, he's comparing it to the, the relationship of Jesus to the church. And he brings it up again. It's not an accident. It's a symbol. And it's a reminder. It's a reminder to the couple it's a reminder that, that of this great love and this great unity that God wants us to have. That shouldn't be considered evil or dirty. It's beautiful. And it should be good. So if that's true, if this symbol is is if this act is, is a symbol of loving unity that God has brought together, an expression of, this, of these vows that we've made in our lives that are together and have become one, then what happens when adultery comes in? Well, it destroys that symbol. It does multiple things. First of all, it breaks the promise. It breaks the promise that you made before God. He said, till death do you part. 
You made this promise, and you just didn't make it to each other. You made it before God. Adultery destroys that symbol. And again, we have to remind ourselves from time to time of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying adultery is not simply the act. It's the lustful intent. The symbol is breaking. What else does it do? It destroys this symbol of the witness of Christ's love for the church. In the Old Testament, oftentimes when the prophets wanted to talk about um, idolatry, about Israel worshiping other gods, adultery was the image that was used. In fact, there's a whole book, one of the prophets, Hosea, is that exact picture of adultery being used to, to talk about idolatry. Adultery is not a picture of love. It is certainly not a picture of God's love. Adultery is, is a picture of idolatry. It's a picture of, of broken vows. And not again just vows you make to one another, but vows you make to God. Whenever I do um, premarital counseling, it's one of the things I try to tell the couple. Maybe why I don't do a lot of marriages, because maybe the word gets out. Maybe I get bad Yelp reviews. I don't know. But I tell them that you are not just making a vow to one another. This isn't just about your love. If you're Christians and you want to have a Christian marriage, then it's... It's more than that. You are making a vow, not just before God, you are making a vow to God. You are saying, God, this is not just something we make in your presence. I am promising you that I will love this person and only this person in this way. That's it. It's a promise I make to you, and I make it to you because you brought this person into my life so that we could be a signpost, a symbol of your great love for this world. And we want to be a part of that. We want to display for this world your incredible, powerful, supernatural, abundant love that brings two people who are different together and makes them one. We want to do that. That's the vow we're making. I think if we took marriage more seriously, the sex part would kind of take care of itself. But I think we've even forgotten what marriage is for. And we've forgotten that, that, that God has said, marriage is my way. It is a signpost. It is also foundational to a good, healthy society. Adultery if it's leading to the breakdown of marriage, it will ultimately lead to the breakdown of society. That's not the picture we've been told since the 60s. Since the 60s, we've been told, hey, just, you know, let's have free and open relationships and society will be better. It's not true. So it's, Adultery is destructive, and it's destructive beyond just the relationship to one another. 
And I remind you again, it's, it's not just the act. It's the lustful intent. And when, you know, some of you might be like, well, that's great. You know, it's great, but some of you might be thinking, sex is just a memory for me. It was a long time ago. And some of you might be thinking, oh, it's maybe in the future, but I'm not really thinking about it now. Well, let me give you something to think about then. Because the general principle here applies not just about sex, it applies to everything, is that sin is more than just action. Sin is more than just action. Sin is also the desire that's in our hearts. The desire that's in your heart will show up somehow, some way. This is one of the reasons, not just pornography, but what we see in the movies about relationships that husbands and wives are supposed to have or relationships that, that boyfriends and girlfriends are supposed to have. When we see that in, in movies, when we, when we hear about what it's supposed to be in songs, what happens is, is, is it affects, it affects how we view our spouses. And that desire in our hearts is going to show up somehow, some way. It might not show up in you committing adultery. It might not even show up in you having lustful intents towards someone else. But you know where it could show up? It could show up in you being not satisfied with your spouse. Because he's just not as, he's just not as romantic and cool as that guy in the movies was. Or she's just not as, as, as sexy as that woman was. And, you know, we're going to stay. We made a promise. But are, we sometimes think we're missing out. We're missing out on something. And it shows up somehow, some way. Maybe it shows up in a, in a distance that, that we have from each other. Oh, we're close, but we're not that close. Maybe it shows up in where we don't talk about things. There's certain things we just don't talk about, we don't even bring up. And instead of growing closer to one another and learning more about each other, we, we kind of keep our spouses at safe distances. Somehow, some way. It's going to show up. And you might not even know. You might not know why your husband drives you nuts and he's irritating. But it could be this thing that you feel that you're supposed to get out of life and you're not getting it. You might not know why you're short with your wife or distant. But it's because you just feel like She's not doing or behaving the way that she should. One of the things when I was younger, um, you know, there were, um, there were three seminars. If I ever went to a youth camp or a church conference, there were, there were three seminars that always got the most people to go. One was about revelation, like, oh, when will the world end? The other one was, how do I know God's will for my life? And the third one was often titled this, 
how far is too far, okay? And the idea was, as Christian young people dating, how physical could we get before it's sin, right? And so we, when we would read these passages and we'd see, oh, lust, lust is just like adultery. So we got it, so we're like, okay, what's lust? Please tell us what lust is so we can get as close to lust as possible without lusting. And that was always the goal as, of young Christians, at least the ones I grew up with. How, can we, how close can we get to sin without sinning? This is my definition of lust. My definition of lust is this, is this sexual desire that given the right opportunity, we would do it. Given the right opportunity, we would do it. And if we're not doing it, we're not doing it not for the right reasons. If you're not doing something because you're afraid of getting caught, and you're afraid of the consequences of getting caught, it can still be lust. But given the right opportunity, you do it. Same thing can be applied to anything, any sin, any sinful desire. It kind of crosses that line when, given the opportunity, we would do it. We should be on the other side. The other side is we would never do it under any circumstances. So sin is more than just an action. It's also the desire in our hearts. And it's one of the reasons Christianity is all about an inside-out job. Oh, when we're younger as Christians, we just need to make sure we get the actions right. But at the same time, something needs to be changing inside of us. That's the whole process of sanctification. It's an inside-out job. Our, our desires, our motivation, our intent is as important as our actions. So now, I try to give you lists. Here's my list. How do I be a disciple in a sex-saturated culture? Well, the first thing is, hopefully, today for some of you was step one is why don't we learn more about God's purpose for sex and let's not be afraid to talk about it second thing teach your children about sex but teach your children specifically about God's purpose for sex teach your children the sexual ethics that comes from God's purpose for sex. There is no place for abuse. There is no place for coercion. There is no place for anything that's unhealthy. Zero. But we need to teach that now. You can't assume. You need to teach like I was hopefully trying to teach my daughters how other gender thinks and what sometimes other gender will say to get what other gender wants. Do we know? When I used to teach middle school, I used to have parents come in and they would, they would talk to me about their kids and I'd be like, were you never a middle school 
child? Did you somehow skip those early adolescence years? You went from like 10 to like 15? Do you not remember how messed up you were and how crazy it was? Do you not remember this? And most of them would say, okay, now I remember. I say, okay, that's why your son is nuts. That's why your daughter is crazy, okay? Just get them through it, and then we'll see you when they're 15 or 16. Teach your children. Third is keep teaching your children. Don't stop. Don't think like, okay, I had that one speech. It was really awkward. It was weird, and I'm done. Teach them all the time. You watch a movie where fornication takes place, tell them. You watch a movie that, that celebrates adultery, tell them. You hear a song they're listening to that just says, have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, whatever makes you happy, tell them. Talk to them. Don't preach at them. Especially if they're believers. Ask them. I mean, I remember talking to this, this girl and when I was teaching high school, and, and she was at the Christian camp, and she considered herself a Christian And she was singing this song that basically was, I don't even want to say the words, but basically was saying, in pop songy way, have sex with me, again and again and again. And I said, do you know what that song is about? She goes, yeah, I do, but it's got a really cool beat. Okay, so here's a Christian girl who says she wants to follow what the Bible says found a song that has a cool beat, and so she's going to walk around saying it over and over again. Teach your children. Keep teaching them, because culture is not going to stop teaching your kids. Culture is going to indoctrinate them more and more. You cannot be with them 24-7, and if you were, it wouldn't be healthy, and your kids would hate you. You have to know Their minds are being shaped just like your mind was shaped. And it's relentless. You have to be relentless. You cannot give up. Some of you go, well, my kids are like 50. I don't know. It might be weird, but maybe you should sit down with your 50-year-old and talk to them about sex. I don't know what happened. The fourth one is what we found in the Corinthian letter. Flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Don't try to get as close as you can and say, I want to go as close as I can and and then I'm going to back off. It's not, how close can I get? Paul says, run away. Affairs are not accidents. Adultery is not an accident. It's not like, oh, I fell down and, you know, all of a sudden we were, I was having an affair. No. Run away. Understand that the way God designed sex is that it will affect your relationship. That if you're a healthy human being with another healthy human being, and you have sex, it will affect your relationship. Unless, unless you have been so programmed by society to turn it off. 
But let me tell you something. When you turn off that part of you that makes sex help your relationship be more intimate and more lasting and gives you that connection, when you turn off that part of you, you turn off something that affects the rest of your life. When you turn that off, you're turning off the ability to really connect with someone in every other way. You're playing with God's design for us. Be careful what you decide to turn on and turn off. Fleeing sexual immorality tells us it is hard to do. And let me tell you, sexual immorality is not just pornography. Pornography is just the grossest examples of it. But it happens all the time in TV shows, movies that, that are everywhere. You see it in advertising. You see it in, celeb- in celebrities and how we celebrate them and our, and our, you know, our sports heroes. Fleeing sexual morality. It's also this idea that we help each other. We help each other. We don't present ourselves in a way that makes us appear to be sexually available to someone. We don't do things that, that even from the outside, maybe you and the other person, it's cool and you get it and there's no problems, but people from the outside see things. I'll tell you now, unless there is some dire, 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 dire emergency, you should never see me driving around town in my car with a woman and myself, other than my wife, my daughters. I guess I'll allow my sister to be part of that, and my sister. You shouldn't see it. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. I'm not even going to give the appearance of it. It's one of the reasons when we first came here, on the doors, we put windows on all the office doors. We don't even want to give the appearance. There's so many ways we can help each other, and we should. The next one is to find your identity in Christ and not in your sexuality. I could probably do several sermons on just this very thing. That too many people are finding their identity not just in their sexuality, but they're finding their identity in their partner, in their spouse, in their marriage. And all of those things are important. But if, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, you have to ultimately, overarchingly, in every moment, find your identity in Christ. That has to be it. Anything else opens us up to so many problems. And our world is pushing and pushing to, everybody's going to identify themselves by their, their, their ethnicity or some, some gender or some, some other political thing. And everybody's finding their identity in different things. But as Christians, we have to find our identity in Christ. And finally, we need to do what we can to help sex become an expression of a healthy marriage.
we need to see that that was God's purpose. We need to talk about it with our spouses. We need to be willing to talk to our children about it. Sex is this symbol. It is the two that become one. But remember, the emphasis is not on sex. The emphasis is on the purity of love that's in the marriage. And sex is the physical representation of that. That physical representation, it should be a beautiful thing because it should be the expression of the relationship, that love that you have, even though your love is not perfect. It should express that. There should be giving and receiving. It's not just, oh, I I do it to get him off my back. You know, I'm just, I don't get anything out of it. No. If you have a healthy relationship, it's giving and receiving. There's a vulnerability and intimacy that can only physically be expressed that way. It should reflect the health of your relationship. Which means, by the way, sex should never be forced, nor should it be withheld. Sex in a Christian marriage shouldn't be used as a weapon to win an argument or as a reward. No, it's an expression. We shouldn't use sex against each other. See, how a couple makes love is symbolic of how they live love. That means not just actions, but but thoughts. Thoughts matter. And let me just tell you, those of you, and usually these are guys, but I'm not going to say women aren't also this way too. Sex is supposed to be an expression of love. And if you want to try to get out of the mindset, if you want to try to start making those steps out of the mindset that the world kind of gives to us all the time, what you have to start doing is thinking that even sex with my spouse is not about lust. It is about love. What is good sex? Good sex is, is, is sex that expresses love, not lust. That's not what the world says. The world says the opposite. The guy who's watching pornography evaluates good sex on, does, does my spouse act like a porn star? That's lust. Transferring lust from something you see or from even some fantasy you have about a coworker or somebody you know to your spouse. It's not love. It's lust. And it's not healthy. No, it's the expression of love when two become one. Sometimes I want to say, I hope I haven't made you uncomfortable, but today, no. I hope I have. I really do. And I hope you're going to think on these things. 
I kind of preach what the Bible preach, uh, presents to us. I don't go out of my way to talk about things unless it's in the text. So it's not like next week is going to be Christian view of sex part two. Okay? Revenge of the empire or return of, I don't know. I don't have a good title yet. But I hope that at least this starts you thinking. It starts you talking. It starts you studying more. Because we need to see that this isn't something that's private or not important, but it's part of God's plan.